Hey, good morning and welcome to Breakthrough Walls. I'm Ken Walls and I'm your host. And today you guys are in for a very special treat. I have the one and only Mr. Paul Hutchinson on the show. You're not going to believe this. Like, just trust me. Share this out right now with everybody that you know. Let's get a lot of eyeballs on this because this is going to be a life-changing interview for many, 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 many people who watch. So stay with us. We'll be right back. All right. So normally what I would do is I would bring my guest Paul on, but what I'm going to do first is I want to share a really, really cool video with you. So watch this and then we'll have Paul on here in just a second. It's not a push. It's only to serve you. But will you give it up for my buddy Paul here? Who goes you know, you use things to motivate yourself to do the right thing long enough for you to realize the right reason to be doing it. And the right reason is not things, it's making a difference. There are certain people in life that they come to the room and lights go dim, yes or no? There's some people that come to the room and everything breaks up. This is one of those guys. Paul is well known not only for running a $14 billion plus real estate fund uh, and not only for his uh, tremendous philanthropic efforts globally to raise tens of millions of dollars in this fight against human trafficking and modern slavery, but Paul also has a very special set of skills that he uses uh, and puts his life on the line on every single operation where he goes undercover. He leads a group of brave men and women who sacrifice and risk everything, their lives, their capital, their reputations, to infiltrate the most heinous and disgusting trafficking networks. These are some of the most dangerous environments around the world. A philanthropist, business leader by day, but at night, one of the most effective weapons that we have as a global community. passion is in in solving hunger or, or, or saving the trees or whatever it is, find something you're passionate about. For me, the truly innocent, there's nothing that every single person of any race, any religion can get behind, like saving children for something that's horrible. So thank you, Tony.
Wow. If that doesn't get you fired up, I don't know what will. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome Paul Hutchinson to the show. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ken. I I'm appreciate you. So honored to have you here. There are many people already watching. <laughs> my, my friend Debbie says chills. She's got chills. Um, so, Paul, thank you again for being here. The um, this show is really about helping people get unstuck in life to have a breakthrough. And you are a man who's definitely done that on, on more than one occasion. Um, so why don't you start with telling everybody a little bit about you, like where you were born and raised? Start there. You bet. Um, well, if we go back to the very beginning, I actually uh, I remember being in the womb. Believe it or not, I, I really do. I, I, my earliest, earliest memory is, I, I, I'll put it this way. I was about four years old and we were swimming at the neighbor's house and we swam all day and my fingers were all kind of raisiny because I've been swimming so much. And we came home, my mom gave me a bath and, and she had just made the bed with brand new clean sheets and tight around the side. So I remember getting into the bed, turned up, she turned off the lights and I put the sheet over the top of my head and I pulled it tight like this. And I ran my fingers on the inside of that sheet. So it was like, you know, and they were all, my, my fingers were been in the water all day long anyway. And that, that sensation came back. And all of a sudden I had this perfect recollection of oh. that being my life. I, I remembered feeling the inside of, and that's what, and I remember my first fear. Um, it was, I remember feeling something that was square, had, had, you know, that was, was tight and square. And I, I didn't know what it was because of that lack of understanding and something new, it created some fear. And later I found a, a picture of my mom when she was about eight months pregnant. She had a, she had a belt buckle. It was a square one, you know, back in the early seventies. And, and I remember feeling that, and that came back to me that day after swimming. And so I, I remember my, my, my first feelings. And I, I remember my first fear. So wow, a kind of a crazy little kid. <laughs> that's insane. So like that you remembered that that's really cool, actually. Well, and, and I think that's what drives us in life so much, Ken, is is feelings and fears. And, mm. you know, if we can figure out how to break through this, and I'll talk about a lot of those in my path of yeah. of what those fears were and how those fears held me back and how breaking through those fears was something that, that transformed my life in so many ways. I, I was born in Utah and um, had a wonderful, wonderful childhood, had four sisters, loved them all dearly. Um, and I, I feel super blessed that I don't have the trauma that so many other people do. Um, you know, I'm, we're gonna get into this a little bit later, but I'm gonna touch on it right now. I've, I've been very involved with anti-child trafficking for the next last decade. In fact, this, uh, this last two weeks is the first time uh, in reality in the last 10 years where I've opened up a social media account. And because I've, I've come to an understanding that one child being sold is unacceptable, 8 million children is beyond comprehension. But that number is teeny tiny compared to what the real problem is. And the real problem is this, we've got 40% of all women have experienced sexual violence sometime in their life, 20% of all men. And of that 20%, I mean, if you've got 
8 billion people in the world and 4 billion of them are women, 4 billion men approximately. Yeah. You've got you've got 1.6 billion that um, women and and you've got 800 million men who have experienced sexual trauma and of those men, one fourth of them was before the age of 10 years old. And one fourth of all women have experienced that kind of violence before as, as children, before 18. So you've got hundreds of millions, billions of people on this planet that have had that kind of trauma, not only sexual trauma, but, but verbal abuse and physical abuse, all of this kind of abuse as children. And, and that's what's creating this tsunami of demand for what's the fastest growing criminal enterprise in the world with child trafficking, et cetera. So I feel very, very blessed to have lived in a home where I was protected. I, we, wow. we never experienced sexual violence or physical violence or, or, or any of the verbal abuse in any way. So super blessed in that way. Now we'll talk about my trauma later. My trauma was fully self-imposed, fully self-imposed. I was, right. it was five years ago. I wasn't Paul Hutchinson. I was Paul effing Hutchinson, right? I had built a <laughs> billion dollar company. I'd done, and 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 I I was super dysfunctional in my relationships and the choices I had made because of that success that I had. And so everybody has trauma in some way, but I feel super blessed that that growing up I didn't have that. Now I I had some self esteem issues that everybody has to get through. I had I had severe buck teeth. I, I couldn't even close my mouth without my teeth coming through all over the top of my bottom lip. And people called me Bucky and, uh, wow. and so badly wanted to be accepted. I wanted to be successful. And my father, when I was about 14 years old, I, I came to him and I said, dad, I want to, I want to, I want to know what, how do you, how do I make friends? You know, how do I have good friends that don't pick on me for these things? And how do I, how do I become successful? What do I do? And he was brilliant. My dad said, you know what, I'm going to give you two gifts and these will change your life. And he gave me a book called how to win friends and influence people. Oh, Dale one of my favorite books of all time. It, 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 it was, and the one he gave me was this old tattered one that he had when he was a kid. And I remember reading that book and I realized, wow, one, one drop of honey attracts more flies than a thousand gallons of gall is what it said. And it talked about how everybody that you talk to, everybody you encounter in your life, they're a thousand times more interested in themselves than they are you. Yeah. And I thought, wow, that's an interesting way to look at things. Here I was at 14 years old, looking at myself in the mirror saying, it's about me, it's about me. And when I realized <laughs> everybody had those same issues. It didn't matter if they were the star of the football team. They would probably look in the mirror and, and have some issues or the, you know, the head cheerleader. She may have had some abuse at home or whatever else. And so everybody is dealing with their own degree of trauma. And if I can get to a place in my heart where I can unconditionally love everybody and, and see through that trauma, then, then it would change. In fact, recently kind of tied into that same book, recently i i've come to this understanding in the last five years people ask me paul how can you go undercover and and go face to face with the most horrible people on the planet somebody selling you an eight-year-old child and not have them see the anger in your eyes in your hatred toward them and my answer my answer surprises people ken i i tell them this i i've learned to love them and people say you can't love them they're selling an eight-year-old i said no i every single person 
every person has got some light inside of them somewhere. And I've, I've realized that if I'm ever judging another human being, ever, whether it's for selling me a child or cutting me off on a freeway, if I'm ever judging another human being, there's a 100% chance that I don't have the information to make that judgment. I don't, I don't know if that guy cutting me off on the freeway, if he was, if his wife is in the hospital, if his daughter's in the hospital, I don't know. He, right. he might just be an a-hole. I don't know, you know, but <laughs> there, there, there may be issues there. I don't know if that guy selling me a child is, if he was raped as a child himself, if, if I'm sure there was a thousand bad decisions and bad things that happened in his life that got him to the point where he thought that was okay. What? Now I'm going to do everything in my power to ensure he never hurts another child again. Right. But I can't judge him. And, and, and that, that understanding started coming from that book that my dad gave when I was 14. But you didn't, you, okay. So let's back up because I know you look like you're, you know, maybe 34, 35, but, um, <laughs> but <laughs> so, I, I, but, but, you know, I, I know that, that, it, it, that's you didn't start like you did you go to college i'm sure you you know graduated high school did you end up in college i did i i was um so i was i was born in 1970 i'm actually 52 and wow, uh you're younger uh, than me i'm gentleman <laughs> <laughs> but but i i wanted to be i wanted to be a surgeon in fact my my goal when i was five wow. ten years old i wanted to be not a regular doctor, a surgeon, not a regular surgeon, but a, a, a heart surgeon, not a regular heart surgeon, but one who operated on children. I, I wanted to be a pediatric cardiologist. And ironically, fast forward 40 plus years later, I now see myself as, as a heart doctor on children, on people wow. who have had trauma as children, et cetera. But that was my passion is to be a, be a heart, heart surgeon with children. And I, I was, um, uh, I was two months away from taking the MCAT and I was going to the university of Utah and I got in a major car accident and, uh, severed all the tendons in my hand. Um, I, I still have I 80 in, in my hand from, you know, 30 plus years ago. And wow. I got in this major car accident and they didn't know if I'd have the dexterity to be a surgeon. And uh, they said, well, you can be a regular doctor. And my answer was, I, I don't want to be a regular anything. <laughs> you know, if I'm, if I'm going to be a, if I'm going to be a, a garbage man, I'm going to own the dump. That's, 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 that's how I think, you know? But where, where, okay. So, but, uh, I'm so curious about this, Paul, because you're, you're a driver. You're, you're, but like, where did that, where did that originate? Where did that, that comes it was from the, people it was aren't the, like that. It was the second gift that my father gave me at 14. Okay. One was that book, How okay. to Win Friends and Influence People. And the other was an audio tape program by Brian Tracy uh, called Psychology, the Psychology of Achievement. Yep. And it was in those little tape things that wound up. I listened, can I listen to those tapes so many times? on my Sony Walkman, I listened to them over and over again that I broke the tapes and I, I had to tape them together and wind them back up with a pencil because, you know, as I, I was so intrigued with this mindset and that laid the foundation for everything. Can, when I understood that I could 
I could, that not only were my actions creating a world of abundance, but my words and most importantly, my thoughts. And that if I could control those thoughts, if I could learn to look in the mirror and not see Bucky, if, if instead I could look in the mirror and visualize myself shaving a millionaire, you know, if I could, if I could visualize myself with this, this life of abundance, if I could, if I could change those negative habit patterns of thought that were creating my scarcity at the time, I could create a world of abundance and that changed everything. In fact, I'm going to go through a bunch of stories on the life path that are all tied to what I learned in that book. In fact, my first book that's coming out in, in about three months is called, Are You Listening? And it talks about that, that, that energetic source that all of us have, this ability to, to feel and recognize the spirit of truth in every single decision that we make. In fact, the second thing that happened that changed everything for me is early in my, my early 20s, I was introduced to a man. His name was Jerry Prine. He unfortunately passed away in 2010. But Jerry uh, never graduated from eighth grade. In fact, he, he, he read on a third grade level. And um, yet he, and he was called stupid his whole life. Yet he knew inside that he could contribute some beautiful things to the world. And Jerry was the inventor of over 300 life-saving medical devices. And he, he was the inventor of the original software that IBM used for voice recognition. He, he put it together because he couldn't wow. read or write or everything else. It was, it was, it, it was this, this understanding that he had. And I, I went to lunch with him and, and he said, Paul, he said, you could have an IQ at 200 if you wanted. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm really not that smart. I, I worked my butt <laughs> off for decent grades. I didn't even get a scholarship, right? So I'm not that right. smart. He goes, no. He said, the difference between me and you is I listen better than you. And I said, you listen better than me? And I touched my ear. He said, no, I listen better than you. And he touched his heart. He said, most people discount their intuition because they know not from where it came. They think that it came from their limited understanding, the books they've read and the people they've listened to. And most people look in the mirror and they don't believe in that man in the mirror. And so why would they believe stuff that's coming out of their own head? But if they understood that it comes from a place of infinite truth, that all of us are connected in this beautiful way, you know, this is, I'm not going into religion on this, but I, I will say from a spiritual standpoint, there's a beautiful energy that all of us can, can tap into our entire life. And if we learn to listen, it will lead us to abundance. It will lead us to happiness. And it most importantly, it will lead us to our worthwhile goals and dreams. And, it, and we're going to talk about that later too, the importance of clearly identifying what it is that you want in your life and then listening with your heart, tuning in, because that conversation changed everything. And so then I'm like, wow, okay, I've got all this information from Brian Tracy that I can be, do, have anything I want as long as I change these thoughts. I, 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 I meet this guy who's hugely successful in all of, his, and all of his inventions and things, and I understand that we can guide ourselves through our lives by using something much more powerful than watching TV or outside influences that it's all inside of us all the time. That changed everything for me, Ken. It was absolutely <laughs> wow. life-changing. So, 
So you have no idea how much you and I have in common. I, I mean, first, Brian Tracy has been on this show and he changed my life 30 plus years ago as well. I listened to the same. I still have the psychology of success and the psychology of selling or sales um, CD courses. I have, but, and I, cause I wore out the cassette tapes. Like, you did. <laughs> it's like I, did. I, I love, and I told him that I showed him when I had him show. Um, so, you know, everything you just said resonates with me on such an extreme level and people watching, I see the comments. Um, so, so talk about you, you, uh, so did you graduate from college? No, no, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a university of Utah dropout. In fact, uh, you know, my, my, at the height of my company, we had over 4,000 employees and, uh, oh in, in the beginning, me and John, and we have over 43 billion in assets under management now. And, and, uh, and John Pennington and I, uh, he's one of the best man I've ever met. He's, he's got just beautiful integrity, huge heart. And I remember when we were in the beginning, we were in this little teeny office. It was so small that when we, when we backed up to, to stand up together, our chairs would hit type thing. I mean, it was this teeny office and, and, uh, um, and he tells the story all the time. He says, he says, Paul, Paul, uh, we, Paul always had this vision of where we could be. And we, we would be on the phone. We were starting this investment fund and, and we had a deal that we had to have $25,000 by Friday. And I'm on the phone. I'm making phone calls to some people to invest in the fund. And, and John tells the story. He says, yeah, Paul would turn around all the time and he would put his little pinky by his mouth and he would say, John, we're going to be a billion dollar fund. And John said, <laughs> Paul, shut up. I need $25,000 by Friday. Right. But, but that, that, and then John would say to me so many times, he, he, he would say, Paul, he said, he said, if we're going to have a fund that big, you and I both know we don't have the education or pedigree to run it. And I would say, yeah, John, but if we have the vision of where we want to be and we build the foundation with integrity, we will attract the right people at the right time to help create this empire. And that's exactly what happened. There is there is statistical probability of us getting the right people that came in is almost zero. Don Hartman's a perfect example. Don Don uh, um, Don's resume was the most impressive piece of paper I had ever seen. He ran the financial institutions division for Citigroup in Asia. He raised fourteen billion dollars to bail out the Asian debt crisis. And my my son's soccer coach came to me and said, hey, there's a guy that you probably should meet. And and again, I was listening and I, there was something super strong when he said that. I said, well, whoever he is, I want to meet him. And then he shows me his resume and I'm like, holy crap, this guy's in Utah. And Don came on and a few months later, he came into my office. This was December of 06. And he said, Paul, he said, we're in trouble. And I said, we, the, the company, the fund? He goes, no, we, the whole country. He said, we're looking at a multi-trillion dollar problem. And if you don't change, you're going to be upside down with everybody in, in your industry. This is two years, a year and a half before the 2008 crisis. And, yeah. and what I didn't realize when we brought Don on is he was arguably one of the top experts in the world at analyzing banking cycles and credit crises. His job at Citi was the head of the financial institutions research division. There, it was a one in a billion chance that the guy who, who 
who had studied banking cycles and credit crises for Citigroup for decades, was there as our employee and then our partner and saw the crisis early. And so again, back to the visualization, creating something with integrity and listening, it, it allowed us to attract the perfect people in but, our business that allowed us to expand and grow into something beautiful that it is today. My, so, my question, my question for you is, did you, so you dropped out. I love that. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a university, a, a dropout. University of Utah uh, dropout. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, did you, did you immediately, like when you dropped out, did you go, I, I know what I want to do. I know exactly what I want to do and go start doing it. No, here's, here's what happened. So many times people will identify their destination before they identify their, their, their route, their journey. And so uh, I'm, I'm sorry, they'll, they'll identify their journey first and their destination later. So many times we spend time climbing a ladder only to realize it's, it's leaning against the wrong wall. The most mm. important thing that I did is I had a mentor that had me um, sit wow. down and write out what that end goal was. Okay. This is the kind of income that I want. This is the lifestyle that I want. This is the, this is the, the amount of money I want to donate to charity. This is the time that I want. This is the ability I want to travel. See my, my sister, Tiffany used to be a travel agent. And if I, if I called her up and I said, Hey Tiff, I want to, I want to be on a seven thirty-seven tomorrow at three o'clock. And she'd say, well, where do you want to go, Paul? And if and then if I answered saying, well, I want to make sure that it has blue wings and two engines, she'd laugh at me. But that's how most people live their life. They're all talking about this, this vehicle. And instead, if I said, hey, Tiff, I, I, need, to be, I need to be in New York by, for a meeting tomorrow at 7 o'clock p.m., she would tell me you need to be at the airport at this time. And it wouldn't matter what color the wings were. And it wouldn't matter right. how many engines were on the plane. That's the vehicle that was destined to get to there. And so as we, as we lay out our life, identifying where we want to go, what kind of a lifestyle we want, what kind of relationships we want, what kind of a charity work we want to be doing, whatever it is, identifying clearly what that end goal is, but then, and then, then simply listening and realizing that some beautiful answers will start coming and they'll show up for you. And so what happened is, you know, I had this goal where I wanted to make a powerful, positive impact in the lives of others. I had a, I had a poster on my wall when I was a kid and it had a bunch of Lamborghinis and Ferraris and, and it, it had a sign that said, he who has the most toys wins. Right? <laughs> Today I have one that says he who has a powerful, positive impact in the most lives wins. And I knew that, you know, I couldn't be a heart surgeon and I couldn't be a regular doctor. And so my, 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 um, my mentor encouraged me. He said, Paul, he said, you have a, you have a gift with people and ability to communicate. He said, if you do what I teach you to do, you'd be a millionaire by the time you're 30 and you'll have the time to enjoy it. And I said, well, what do I, what do I do? He said, well, number one, anybody in business has got to learn how to handle rejection and learn how to sell. He said, so I suggest you quit your job at the hospital, find the highest rejection job you can possibly find. And uh, wow. so I, 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 I got a job at a call center, 300 employees. They were cold calling, selling 
children's videos. Now, I told him I'm not selling anything I don't believe in ever, 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 ever. And so I, I, th these guys were selling children's self-help programs, teaching them honesty and integrity and stranger danger and things like this. And, and that felt right because it was in line with my goal to help children. And it was in line with my, my mentor said, I need to learn how to handle rejection and learn how to sell. And I, I'm, I'm in this room. There's 300 employees cold calling. There's average employee was selling 20 videos per week. There was two guys that were selling 70 a week. Wow. And, and my mentor told me, he said, Paul, he said, you've got to work to learn. Don't work to earn. He said, if you're there one day for a paycheck, then you're, you're wasting your time. He said, you're there to educate yourself. So I'm like, okay, now what do I do? He said, he said, the two guys that are there that are making 70 sales a week, take them to lunch on your dime. Spend time with them. Study what they're saying and what they're learning. And so I did every single day. I took one of those two guys to lunch and I would ask him, I would say, okay, what are you saying? How do you handle in this objection, et cetera? Literally within a few weeks, I was making 70 plus sales a week where the average of the 300 were still making 20. And then I went into my boss and I said, Hey, I said, what's the record here? He said, Oh, it's like 203 sales in a week. I said, what do I get if I break that record? And he said, he said, well, what do you want? And he had, he had a, a Mont Blanc pen on his desk, right? <laughs> that was super cool to have a hundred dollar pen. Right? I said, I said, uh, how about I break that record and you give me that pen? And he smiles. He goes, of course. So, so I go home and I'm studying, I'm, I'm studying like audio programs on, on from Dennis Waitley and Zig Ziglar and, and how to handle objections and stuff. And I come back and that next week I visualize that I focus and I make 210 sales. I break the record, you know, the average person is still making 20. And so one of those two guys that were making 70, he's like, Oh, bring it on Paul, you know, cause he had <laughs> held that record for like five years. So he comes back in and makes like 230 sales that next week. And I'm like, game on game on. So I, wow. I go home and the entire weekend, I'm recreating the script, I'm writing objection busters, and I'm memorizing how to relate to people from the heart and really, really help them see that this is something that could be valuable for their children and their family that could transform their lives. And, and when I really started feeling into the heart of it, and it wasn't sales anymore to me, I came back that next week and Ken, I did over three hundred sales that next week the average person still doing 20 and 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 so so and then and then and then you bought the company right <laughs> no then, then something miraculous happened the company decided to bring on a new campaign this was lucinda bassett's attacking anxiety and depression program it was an audio program that helped people break free from the negative habit patterns of thought that were holding them down and creating anxiety and depression. And, wow. and my, um, my, my boss said, Paul, uh, of these 300 people, I don't think any of them can sell this. I'm, he said, I'm bringing in some guys that earn six figure incomes from other companies that are power players on the phone. He said, you're the only person of this big group that I think could be part of that. Do you, do you want to? And so I said, yeah. And so, and my mentor said, wow. do the same thing. You find the two guys that are earning the most. And these guys show up with Mercedes. I'm like 22 years old. And these guys show up with Mercedes and, and BMWs. And my boss said, don't get enamored with that. 
He said, you're not going to be a phone sales guy the rest of your life. You're working to learn. Remember? I said, yeah. He said, you do the same thing. Take two of the best guys in your industry, the two best guys that are there and, and take them to lunch every day. And I did. And I was studying from what they did. And, and pretty soon I was, I was making as much money as any of these guys that were, and I was like 22 years old. And wow. then something really sad happened. There was some, some, the, the company ended up being shut down. There was an FBI raid and investigation where the wow. owners of the company, they shut down all the computers. And one day everybody lost their jobs, uh, like two weeks before Christmas. And, um, at that point, I had made, I had listened to enough tapes and audio programs. I have decided that I was officially unemployable, that mm. I was going to start my own company. And so when, um, when uh, Lucinda Bassett's husband, David Bassett, the attacking anxiety and, and depression program, he called me at, at home and he said, Paul, he said, I've, I've seen all of the numbers. You were killing it in selling these personal coaching programs to help people overcome anxiety. He said, we would like to, to, uh, to, you know, fly you to, to Ohio and you can start running the company and stuff here. I said, you know what? I'm officially unemployable. I don't want to work for anybody, but if you'll let me run the marketing company, if I can start my own company at this point, then I'll run it. And so we, we negotiated. So I started the Midwest center marketing that sold the Midwest Center for Stress and Anxiety programs. At the time, they were doing $6 million a year and they were in the red. Fast forward, by the time I was 29 years old, I had built this up to over 200 employees. I had person, wow. and we were doing $70 million a year through the, through the company and everything. We had 50,000 people a month calling in off of this infomercial. And, and wow. What was so powerful, Ken, is that the drug companies were making billions of dollars a year, giving people artificial crap that was covering up the symptoms. In fact, if you imagine this big, ugly tree, and this tree is anxiety and depression, and, and there's branches that are irritable bowel syndrome, numbness in your hands and feet, and palpitations in your heart, all these and crazy, horrible things. And the drugs are just covering up the branches, just covering up branches. And, but the roots of the problem are negative habit patterns of thought, worry, what if thinking, negative expectations, the, the perceptions we have of ourselves, our coping skills in dealing with stress. These are all things that can be changed and they can be changed. We had a, a workbook and an audio program. And what was beautiful is that the, the videos that we put together were, were, were just cameras from our phone from with real living, breathing, loving human beings who had been through it before that had used these principles. And even the coaches that we used were not therapists and psychiatrists. They were, they were people who had graduated from our program. They were people who had been there before. And that gave our customers the most powerful tool that they didn't have, which was belief. Once wow. they had that belief, and the tools, a person who understands, who, a person who, who, who has a dream and has that visualization of where they want to be and, and believes they can look in the mirror and believe that they can get there is never at the mercy to somebody who simply teaches how or understands how. If we have the how, we have the workbook and everything else necessary to help them overcome, but, but the very thing that they were fighting stopped them. From overcoming that that challenge and that very thing that they were fighting that negative self-talk was saying yeah oh, that's not going to work for me it's not going to work for me 
But by giving them the, a personal coach who had been there before and says, you know what, Ken, I believe in you. I believe in you. I've been there before. And this is what I did to get through it. We had a huge high success rate. We had 97% success rate within the, the coaching program. Only We had a 100% money back guarantee, only 3%. Of the people who had gone through that said, you know, I I'm not able to live a normal life again. And so it was so beautiful to be able to see that transformation. And so so I, I ended up selling that company when I was 29 years old. I, I met my goal, made a, made some good money. Most of I sold it actually for $20 million. Most of that was in stock. It was restricted stock. That's a whole separate story, but I learned later. But I had some <laughs> cash out of it. And uh and and that's where I transitioned into, into the fund. And we can, we can talk about that now, or you can ask any other questions about the anxiety program in my twenties. Well, I'm, I'm absolutely like, I, I never run out of questions, Paul, but I, I'm like, I'm sitting here going, Oh my God. Okay. Well, he I'll, made a right turn at that point in life. I made a left turn and that explains a lot. <laughs> No, I, I just, I love that because I've, I've been down some similar paths. I mean, with the telemarketing stuff and everything. So, um, you know, talk about, cause I know that you hired people to get them on the phones and, and, um, I have this mastermind. We did this call last night and, and I, I, you know, there was a situation where I said to somebody, I said, you're trapped in the story that you've sold yourself that somebody else taught you or gave you when you were a child. And, and that's what is holding you back. Talk about the people that you've hired to get on the phones or be in sales or, or run a department or whatever that you knew they're trapped in, in an old story and, and you need to help them have that paradigm shift. How did you approach that and accomplish it? Beautiful, beautiful question. So I'm going to tell you a story about Robert. Uh, Robert was when I had 200 employees and uh, we were we were on the phone. We were selling the coaching programs to help people with anxiety. Robert had a beautiful heart. He loved the people on the phone and he loved the fact that he was transforming lives by making phone calls and helping people overcome their anxiety. However, yeah. Robert had a self-limiting belief. Robert saw himself as a $30,000 a year person. They lived in this small apartment. He had this old rundown car. He had a few kids and, and it was difficult for him to, to expand past that. And Robert would come in the first, after a paycheck, he would come in the, the first part of the month, he would come in and he would make phone calls and he would kill it. He would be so effective and he would do well enough that if he continued that throughout the month, he would be a, a six-figure income person easily, easily. But the challenge was is that Robert would come in and he would, he would kill it for the first week and then boom, everything would just drop. And I remember Robert would, would kneel down in front of his, his desk and pray to God to fix things in his life mm. that he didn't believe were going to be fixed. Now, that's so important. People think that faith is going to church and asking God to fix things in their life that they don't believe are going to be fixed. 
It's, it's that self-belief that is everything. It's not throwing something out on somebody else, even God, and saying, fix this for me. Because when you do that, but you don't believe that it's going to come, it's, you're going to sabotage yourself. And so I came to understand that Robert didn't see himself like I saw him. He didn't see himself as a $100,000 a year plus person. He saw himself as a $30,000 a year person. So I pulled him off the phones. I said, Robert, I said, we're going to go for a, for a drive for the rest of the afternoon. I said, I'll still pay you for today. I said, but I'm going to take you for a drive. And so we went out and I said, Robert, I said, if every car in the world cost a dollar, what would you drive? And he said, well, I, I want to have one of those, those custom vans with the high tops and the bed in the back. Now, now that's not my dream. I can never, <laughs> you know, that's, but that was, that was his, right? And so, yeah. so I took him and we went to the car dealership and we found one of those things and we were driving it. I had him in the driver's seat and I said, Robert, can you see yourself in this? He goes, oh, this is so nice. I could never afford this. I said, yes, you can. Do you realize that if every week of the month you were as effective as you were the first week, you would be able to have this and so much more? All you have to do is see yourself, visualize yourself in this car. I said, and you can have it. And then we, then we, after we were done driving the car, we went to, we drove into a nice neighborhood. I said, if every, if every house cost a dollar, what would you drive? And, and he, I mean, what, if every house cost a dollar, where would you live? And he says, oh, this one up on the hill. So we went up there and we saw this beautiful home. And I, and I, I said, I said, can you see yourself in that? He goes, oh, never. I said, that's the problem is you don't see yourself there. I said, you're changing lives with these people. He says, if it's not motivating enough for you that, that, that a Two-thirds, three-fourths of the people that you're talking to on the phone every month are not getting the help that they need because Robert doesn't believe in himself. I said, then we need to fix that, don't we? He goes, Yeah, I think we do. I said, So, so you could have that house. You could have this lifestyle. You could have everything you want to. You just have to change those negative habit patterns of thought in yourself, just like what we're teaching all of these people that we're selling the program to. Wow. And and that transformed Robert's life in helping him see. In fact, I, I later I was a mentor to a bunch of young entrepreneurs and business owners. And at the time, my my mentor was named Steve. And I had I had this young guy uh, that this actually he was older than me at this guy named named Dallas and Dallas had uh, he was having a hard time getting his business started and going. So I decided I'm going to introduce him to my mentor. So I took him and we were driving in Steve's car. This was a this was a Mercedes and it was beautiful. And I put Steve was driving and I put Dallas up front and I was in the back. And Steve asked Dallas, he said, Dallas, he said, what's what's your why? Why do you want to build your your company? What what's what's your dream? And Dallas says, Well, okay, that's that's the problem, Steve. And Steve said, What? And I didn't think Steve heard him. And so I I, I leaned forward and I said, Steve, he says, that's the problem. And Steve turned around and he said, No, Paul, he said, That's your problem. I'm like, that's my problem that Dallas doesn't have a dream. He goes, yeah. He said, why are you teaching him how to build his company when he doesn't understand his why? Mm. If you can't clearly help him identify the, the reason he wants to build a company, you are wasting your time and his. So Take him out to identify whatever it is. I want to be more charitable. I want to have more time with my family. I want to travel more. Whatever it is, he, he said, a man who understands why is never at the mercy to a man who simply understands how. 
And, and that changed everything in terms of how I mentored and how I helped people. And it was back to that Brian Tracy thing. Again, if in our mind, if we can't visualize, in fact, Brian actually taught this beautiful um, uh, story. He said that Yale University had a, had a study, and this was, I guess now is 40, 50 years ago. But in this study, only 3% of the graduating class of Yale University that year, only 3% had clear, specific, written goals. 20 years later, that 3% was worth more in net assets than the entire 97% put together. Yeah. That's one of the most amazing longitudinal studies that I've ever read. And it's simply this. It, it didn't matter what their GPA was. It didn't matter what, their, 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 what they were studying, what their, what their major was. The, the differentiating factor with them was the fact that they had clear, specific, written goals. Most people spend more time planning their next vacation than they do planning their life. And if, if you just took an extra hour or two today and sat down and said, okay, if time and money were no issue, what would I do? In fact, I'm going to tell you a beautiful story. This is so inspiring. So my, my first wife was named Tiffany. Uh, when we first got married, she was a model for McCarty's. They do the swimsuit issue of Sports Illustrated. She was on the Crimson Line at the University of Utah dancer. Um, and she loved to dance. And then that car accident that I severed the tendons in my hand, mm -hmm. she, was, she was in that car accident. She broke her pelvic bone. Mm -hmm. And she wasn't able to dance. She wasn't able to exercise. And she started putting on a lot of weight. Um, she got pregnant with our, our Jordan and Jaden, our twins. Um, she got pregnant with our, our third little boy, Brennan. 29 years old, she is 230 pounds. Now, she started out when we got married, she was 112. So wow. 230 pounds, 29 years old. I had just sold my marketing company, the Midwest Center One. I was at a seminar and I was teaching people that they can be have and do anything they want. They just have to decide what it is. The world is theirs, whatever it is they want. And so we were sitting talking after that, that, uh, that time I was speaking and she said, Paul, she said, I want to, I want to do something great with my life. And I said, Tiff, what would you do if I said, if time and money were no issue and you knew you couldn't fail, what would you dream? Anything? What would you dream? And she looks down. She says, you're going to laugh at me. I said, oh, well, not. She said, since I was a little girl, I wanted to be an NFL cheerleader. I look at my 230-pound wife. I'm like, you go, girl. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and and she, she said, no, I'm, I'm serious. She says, when I was 14 years old, I was, I was dancing at a 49ers game. At, at their halftime. And I thought this would be so amazing to be a 49ers cheerleader. And so I, this was in December and I, I realized she was serious. So for Christmas that year, I, I went online and I found a picture of a San Francisco 49ers gold dress cheerleader. And I, and I, and I, whose hair looked like Tiffany's, but of course her face and her body yeah. were very different. Right. And I put Tiffany's face on it on, on Adobe Photoshop. So I photoshopped yeah. her face in there and and I, I framed it. I, I wrote at the bottom, Tiffany Hutchinson, San Francisco 49ers gold dress cheerleader. And, and I framed it and I gave it to her for Christmas. And she opened up that package and she started crying. And she set that 
pitcher by her bedstand. And every single night before she went to bed, she held that pitcher and she looked at it and just visualized that being her. Every single morning when she woke up, she before she even got out of bed, she pulled that pitcher off her nightstand and she looked at it and visualized that being her. And she started exercising. It motivated her to exercise. She exercised two to four hours every day. A year later, no surgery at all. She had gone from 230 pounds down to 112, back to her pre-wedding weight. Wow. It changed her life. Now, there were 500 girls trying out for the 49ers that year. And I said, Tiff, I said, and, and how they do the cuts is every single day they cut like half of them. So right. I knew they were going to cut half and then half and half. And I said, Tiff, I said, I can get a discount on the room if we pay for a week, but you know, then we'll waste it if you get cut early on. And so should I just do a day by day? And she looks at me and she goes, Paul, I can't believe you said that. She said, what, where's your belief? She said, I'm not <laughs> going to get cut. <laughs> you know, now, what's funny is, you know, she was 29 years old, right? There's, wow. and she's a mother of three. She lives in Utah, right? How, and, wow. and so she said, I'm not going to get cut. There's 500 girls trying out three spots available that year. Wow. She was the first pick. Oh my God. She was the only girl on the team that was over 25. The only girl married, the only girl with kids. It cost me like 30 plus thousand dollars in plane tickets just to fly her out for the, for the, for the, for the, um, um, for all the games and all of the, the performances and everything else that they did every single week. Um, I mean, they had to practice two or three times a week, but she wanted the kids to stay in the schools that they were. And so, so, but who wouldn't wow. pay $30,000 to have their 19 year old wife back again? Right. right. <laughs> and it transformed her opinion of herself and that vision. And it was a beautiful story that it doesn't matter how old we are. It doesn't matter all these situations in our life. We can be, do, and have anything that you want in your life. Oh so, my gosh. Now I want to, wow. I want to go in before we lose our time. I want to talk about charity work. Yeah. And, and, and Hey, we got all the time in the world, man. <laughs> you, I, I don't care how long we go, but I, so, so yeah, talk, I want you to talk about that. I want you to talk about the transition into the, um, um, the fund and, and mm-hmm. all of that. And, and, and then how you got into the, the, the undercover stuff, which is incredible. If you can, I, I'm assuming. You yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm out of that work now. So it's, okay. I'm coming public with it for the first time. It's unbelievable. So, so yeah, go ahead. Talk about the charity stuff and where did that begin for you? How, how did you get into that? The, the, the beginning of me really understanding the value of charity um, actually came back when I was 19 years old. Um, so I, I, I grew up, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm a, I'm a non-denominational Christian today, but I, I grew up LDS and in, in the, in that church, you spend two years on a, on a service mission. And, yeah. um, and this is where things, this is not a religious thing, but this is a relationship I have with God thing. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I moved into a new area. You, you get transferred every few months into new areas and whatever. I moved into a new area and my my president uh, of the mission called me and he said, Paul, he said, I need you to close down the area that you're in. There's been no no baptisms in two years. There's nobody interested at all in the church or anything. And I and I, I thought, hmm, 
I said, I, I just barely got a brand new companion. He was kind of a cool guy. And I thought, I don't want to end this in 30 days. I said, so I said, President, I said, can we have this conversation in 30 days? Are you good with that? And he laughed. He goes, yeah, we can do that. <laughs> so I, I took out a piece of paper. I hung up the phone, took out a piece of paper. And I, I said to my companion, I said, I said, brother, I said, we're going to write a goal at the top of this paper that is so big that you and I, for the rest of our lives, are going to know we had nothing to do with it if it happens and when it happens. And so the average missionary back then, I served in Virginia, and the average missionary had like seven baptisms in two years. That's like three and a half per year, right? Yeah. A, a, a realistic goal would have been one or two people as investigators, something people interested. A crazy goal would have been a baptism. You know, I decided we would write 30 days from now, we will have 10. That's impossible. That's impossible, impossible. We didn't have anything to work with. Right. And then I, I wrote a line underneath it and I said, okay, the rest of this paper, we're not going to fill up with things that we're going to do to accomplish this because there's no way we can do that. There's no way we can't knock on enough doors to accomplish this. It's impossible here. I said, instead, we're going to fill it up with things that we're going to do to prove God, prove to God that he can accomplish it for us, right? So mm. this is my mindset at the time. Wow. And we decided to fill up the entire thing with charity work, with donating time at the old folks' home, making time for the the, the widow next door and helping her repair her fence, and the, this other family that, that he was out of a job and helping them work on their yard, some other, all of it was charity. The entire thing was charity work. And 30 days later, we had reached that goal. Now, the miracle wasn't that. The miracle was the fact that every none, none of them came from any work we did, even the charity work. They all come from random phone calls from other people saying, hey, wow. there's somebody you need to talk to. This is the pattern that continued in my life. I realized that if I worked really hard at my business goals, I had, I had decent results because I worked my butt off, right? right? But if I worked really hard and tried to have a, powerful, positive impact in the lives of other people. I had huge goals in my business, uh, huge results in my business world. And very seldom did those results come from anything that I did. I, I would make phone calls. I would I'd work really hard, but then all of a sudden, boom, something would come in. And I think that for me, you call it God, call it the universe, call it whatever you want. There's a higher power, very interested in us doing good. And for mm. me, that higher power knows that Paul Hutchinson has a propensity to have an ego. So he wants me to know that I had nothing to do with the growth of a $40 billion <laughs> company, right? So, so for, for example, I, um, Glenn Beck won, I don't know if you know who Glenn is, he's a big of radio course, talk yeah, show. Of course. So yeah. Glenn wanted to launch his anti-child trafficking campaign from Bangkok, Thailand. And I knew that he had a huge audience and a lot of people whose lives would be touched if that happened. And at the time, the, the charity that we were working with, they, you know, we had a bunch of grandmas that were donating $5 a month to help rescue children. And that's kind of sacred money. We didn't want to spend 100 grand is what it was going to take to send, send Glenn Beck and his, his team to Thailand to make this happen. So I decided that, that I would make that happen myself and Don, um, one of my partners in the, in the fund. So we, we, we helped write that check, um, to go to Thailand and wow. so that he could film everything on the way home as the plane was landing in the U S the wheels touched down boop, 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 as the wheels touched down and I got cell phone signal. I had two voicemail messages pop up on my phone. One of them was from one of the members of the Marriott family saying, Paul, I've looked at your senior housing investment fund. I, I want to put another 
X number of million dollars into that fund. The other one was from Flying J Management with even a bigger number. My income from those two voicemail messages, multiples exceeded what I had just written the check for, to, for from a charity standpoint. And it happens every single time. When, when I got involved in anti-child rescue, rescuing work, our fund was only $2 billion. Today, it's $43 billion. How does, how does somebody become a partner, let alone a co-founder of a 40 plus billion dollar company? You're, you're, you're not a University of Utah dropout. You go to Harvard, you get a JD MBA, you <laughs> move to New York, you start at the bottom, you kiss right. up for 20 plus years, and maybe, maybe you end up being a partner. The statistical probability of me being where I am is zero. The only way that I understand it is that number one, that Brian Tracy tape program that changed how I thought and how I felt about success and I could visualize it. And number two, and probably most important, I made a decision in my early 20s that not 5%, not 10%, but 20% of my money and 20% of my time would go to making a powerful, positive impact in the lives of other people. Wow. That one decision from a charity standpoint, I tell people I'm not that, I'm not that charitable. I just need help running my companies and you know, God and the universe and everything around is a way better, smarter than I am at running them. And that's what happens every single time making that decision to, to do charity. I've, I've served on countless boards of directors. I, in my, when I made that decision in my early twenties that I was going to give 20% of my money and 20%, I, I didn't know where would make the big difference. I was, I was giving money to a, you know, a 40 year old man on the side of the street that's asking me for drug money. And that didn't feel right. I, I took the kids out one time with a bunch of pizzas that we were going to feed the homeless. And we rolled down the windows, drove, drove through the homeless area and they were handing out pieces of pizza. And one of the homeless guys grabbed one of the boxes from them and they were throwing F-bombs around and fighting over these pizzas. I'm like, crap. And I rolled up the windows and I thought, does this feel right? Is this the charity? Now, yes, some of those people are in really hard situations and right. I think we can help them by changing that perceptions they have of themselves and showing them the lifestyle that they can have. Right. But for me, the decision that I made was the truly innocent, a nine-year-old child in a position completely outside of any decisions that she made. I, that's, that's where I wanted to focus. I, 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 I was already helping, wanting to help children with me wanting to be a, a child pediatric surgeon. Right. But, but I, so I donated time at the, the Ronald McDonald house and, and, and time at primary children's hospital. I was on the Make-A-Wish board of directors. For seven years, I was the incoming chairman for Make-A-Wish here in Utah when I got a phone call from Sean Reyes, our attorney general. Wow. And he said, Paul, he said, I know that you've donated a lot of money and a lot of time to help children. Um, he said, I have something I need to talk to you about that's pretty dark. I said, what's that? He said, it's the fastest growing criminal enterprise in the world. And good people don't know that it's even happening. He said, he said, it's child sex trafficking. I'm like, sex trafficking? Who, who, would, who would have sex with a child? Are you kidding me? He goes, no. He said, this is serious. He said, he said, there's more today 
And I'm not talking about just children being abused at home, which is horrible and even bigger. Sold human beings, there's more today than all 300 years of the transatlantic slave trade put together. Oh, my he God. Said, wow. I said, well, how can I help? And he said, well, he said, you can help with something that's really hands on. He said, there's a there's a Homeland Security agent who is in Colombia. He found 20 children in Cartagena and he wants to rescue those children. He was working with Homeland Security. He needed $50,000 to rescue these children. And and uh, and he couldn't get the U.S. government to give him the money because he couldn't prove that there's any Americans involved. In fact, uh, he tells a story about how another one of the agents had a, uh, a fake Hewlett Packard's manufacturing sting in China that he needed $50,000 for and, 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 and Homeland Security gave him the 50,000, but they wouldn't give Tim the, the 50,000 he needed for, for this rescue of these children. So he was so frustrated. He, he quit his job and like two weeks later, he had only raised $700. And so, wow. so that's when I was called and some other people, uh, Glenn Beck was a huge help on this and, and donated some money as well. And uh, we, we, we helped to make that happen. But then a few weeks later, he called me and he said, Paul, he said, I'm in Cartagena, Colombia. This was Tim calling. And he said, I, I, um, there's not just 20 children here. There's more than 50. And there's more than 100 children tied to the same trafficking rings in some other cities surrounding. He said, we have a plan that we can rescue all 100 children plus on the same day at the same time, but I need your help in a big way. And I said, well, how much do you need? He said, I need you. Can you be in Colombia in two days? He said, the head trafficker down here has a piece of property. It's an island that he inherited from his mom and he wants to develop it into a child brothel sex resort, kind oh. of like the Jeffrey Epstein Island type thing. He said he has this plan where he can make tens of millions of dollars a year from, from, from wealthy Americans coming down for these horrible things, but he needs $8 million to build this, build out this resort. And what our plan is, Paul, you already, he said, I can't teach my Navy SEALs how to negotiate an $8 million transaction. And my company that was, was all a real estate company at the time. And he said, he said, if you fly down here and, and pose as somebody who is interested in funding his project under one condition, he has to prove to you that he can make it successful. And he's going to do this by having a party in a couple of weeks. And you're going to bring down a whole bunch of wealthy friends of yours wow. for this, this sex party with kids. And he'll bring those all together. And so two days later, I'm in Colombia. We, we meet at this restaurant and I'm face to face with the most evil people that I've ever met selling me eight, nine year old children. Mm. And I thought, Oh my word, this really happens. Now he knew more about my background than most people. I have a uh, special set of skills from a previous life that make me somewhat safe undercover. Um, but most importantly, he needed somebody who could negotiate this, this deal with him and be effective at it. And so, so I'm sitting there at this table and there's, there's four traffickers, four, three males, one female, this female was, she was a, a beauty queen. She was like Miss Cartagena. And she had this fake modeling agency that she was going around to towns in South America and telling the parents, oh, your, your daughter's way too pretty to be working in the fields. She should be a, a model. And they would bring her to this photo shoot and they would snatch them up and take them. And 
And uh, in fact, there's a movie coming out. This exact story I'm telling you is the script to the movie. It follows the story of the Homeland Security agent before he leaves and whatnot. Uh, his part is played by Jim Caviezel. He, Jim played uh, Jesus, Passion of the Christ, Count of Monte Cristo. He plays Tim in the movie. Um, the movie is called The Sound of Freedom, and, and you'll understand why in a second. Um, the actor who plays me um, is Eduardo Verastegui. Eduardo is, is one of the more famous actors in Mexico. I was with the previous uh, president of Mexico and Eduardo, and everybody wanted pictures with Eduardo. Nobody cared about the president. <laughs> and uh, and he, he, he doesn't play Paul Hutchinson because when we put together the movie, I didn't need anybody to know who I am. I was right. still running undercover stuff. And so he plays Pablo Delgado, the, the billion-dollar fund manager who quits his job to go help rescue children. But this story, um, so back to the back to the wow. live story, um, I fly back down. We meet with the U.S. Embassy, the Colombian federal agents. Uh, they provided 40 agents for us. Four of them were our, our maids, four of them were our waiters, four of them were our cooks. You know, they're not very good cooks, but they're armed. Um, tw 25 of them were there to storm the party at the right time. And these guys showed up in the Cartagena op. We actually had three separate cities going on at the same time. Oh and uh, there was Cartagena, Medellin, and Armenia, a total of 127 children. The largest child rescue operation in one day in history that I know of up to that time. Wow. And 54 of them were there in Cartagena. And we're, we're there. These guys show up with these with these boats toward, on this island that we're at with all of these children. And we put the children in this separate place in the house because they're already traumatized enough. We don't want them seeing the, the, the guns and the money changing hands, et cetera. And, and I'm sitting there at this table where we've got Sean there. I've got Tim there. I've got all of these these uh, undercover operators and stuff there. There are my, my buddies that were there for the party. We're all ex-Special Forces guys. And, like <laughs> and, oh and, and we're sitting there at this table. And, and uh, one of the tra traffickers, he says, Pablo, he said, I have a gift for you. And, and, and I, I, said, I said, what's your gift? And he goes in the house and he's in there for about 10 minutes. And you could hear a couple of the children crying. And he comes back out and he has four virgins scared to death, three little girls, one little boy. This little boy was 11 years old. They had given him cocaine that morning because he was so scared it was going to hurt. He was abducted from Haiti. What kind of effed up uh, monster thinks that that's attractive? You know, every uh, cell in my body wanted to hug these kids and say, you're going to be fine. You know, you're going to see your parents again. And and this this little girl, the same one that that two weeks before one of the traffickers had showed me on his phone and said, Pablo, this two weeks before he goes, Pablo, let me show you this gift. And he shows me this little 11 year old girl. And he says, this is princess. She's still a virgin. We just took delivery of some. And she, and she's my gift for this party. And he started talking about these horrible things we do this little girl. And I thought, oh, my word, if we could get these children out before they're ever raped the first time, that's a miracle. And something he said made me realize he had more than her. I said, Fuego, I said, you have you have more virgins? Oh, yeah, I have three or four more. I said, you have to bring those to the party as well. And he says, oh, no, they're too expensive. Too expensive. I'm already paying $25,000 for this party. We're paying $500 per child for 50 children just for two hours in the afternoon. And, and so fast forward, this, this little girl was standing in front of me. I'm sitting on a chair. Her standing up wasn't much taller than I was sitting down. And there was tear stains in her makeup face. Mm. 
she was so scared. I took her hands. I said, I said, Como se llama? what's your name? And she didn't, she didn't know her name. I'm sure it's because her real name wasn't princess. You know, she was trying right. to think what they should say to her. And I, and I, and I said, it's the bien. It's okay. That was the hardest thing for me is to see her fear in her eyes as she was looking at me. And I thought, Oh my word, if, if my goal is to have a powerful, positive impact in the lives of others, to pull her out of this hell hole is everything. And so, so they went back in the house and, and, the most beautiful moment of my life up to this point was after the agents came, stormed the party, arrested everybody, us included. The bad guys think that we were extradited to the U.S. to stand trial. 30 Child Protective Services people came in with the children. And they started, they wanted to calm them down. They started laughing and they started singing with these children. And that sound of freedom that laughing and singing mm. versus the, that sound of freedom was the most beautiful sound that I ever heard, especially in compared to the crying that we heard half an hour before. This is why we named the movie with uh, Jim Caviezel and Eduardo Barassi. That's why we named it The Sound of Freedom. And uh, it should be coming out sometime next year, uh, looking for some distribution uh, networks and stuff on that. But that is what changed my life. I, I, I said to uh, our attorney general at the time, I said, Sean, I said, I've spent my whole life making rich people richer, you know, really it was only the last 10 years in the fund, but he knew my heart. He knew that right. I had a passion for making a difference in the lives of others. That's how I had lived with all my companies. And, and he, I said, what do I not, I can I write you a check. What do you need? And he said to me, he said, Paul, he said, unfortunately, the majority of demand for this horrible act in second and third world countries comes from wealthy businessmen and celebrities, et cetera, in first world countries. He said, I can't teach my Navy SEALs how to wear a $4,000 suit and a $50,000 watch and negotiate a multi-million dollar deal. He said, and I haven't found a ultra successful business owner who's had the training that you've had. He said, if you're willing to be the bait, I'll change your whole life. So since that time, I've led 70 undercover rescue missions in 15 countries. Started out working with the foundation that uh, that uh, we started with there with Tim and others. Um, wow. The last five years started a foundation called the Child Liberation Foundation. The Child Liberation Foundation uh, um, identifies other NGOs around the world who have who have guys that are rescuing and it pays for the rehabilitation and the reuniting of children with their families. And I have some beautiful, beautiful stories of the plight of these children and getting them back to their families. And, and, um, but my, my focus now, and the reason this is, this is the first um, live broadcast that I've ever done in going into the details of these missions, because I've come to an understanding this last year that going undercover and rescuing 20, 30, 40 children at a time Although thousands of children have been rescued, thousands of children from the foundations that I've worked with and, and others that we have helped to fund, um, that's never going to fix the problem. It's, it's growing faster than anybody can ever imagine. And here's the real problem, Ken. I touched on this early in, the, in our conversation. Eight million children is beyond comprehension. It's, it's, it's just it's so dark. It's so hideous. However, 200 million 
men were raped at under under 10 years old in this world. They, they say that that 20% of all men have experienced sexual violence and one wow. fourth of them, one fourth of them was under the age of 10. And 40% of all women, 40% have experienced sexual violence in their life. And one fourth of all women were as children. Why? This this is what my life mission is at this point. How can I combine the things that I learned from Brian Tracy, the things that I taught with the Attacking Anxiety and Depression program, the things that I have seen being in the darkest, deepest depravity of, of our world in, in seeing these children in this horrible situation? How can I take that and, and tell the stories and write some books that will help really fix the problem. How can I help fix the generational trauma, the hundreds of millions of wow. men and women who have massive trauma sexually as a, and as a child? And here's the crazy thing, Ken. The average age of somebody that comes out and says, yes, I was abused as a child, the average age is 52 years old. They live their entire adult life up to that point, up to the, that's how old I am right now, holding that pain. And, and it comes out in generational abuse. It comes out in, in verbal abuse, sexual abuse, and physical abuse, and, and things that then pass it on generationally. And, 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 it, and, and that, that together with, with the changing of how we connect and how we see each other, yeah. That is what's driving this. The fastest growing criminal enterprise in the world is trafficking. It's now the second most profitable, second only to the, the illegal drugs. It's already passed the illegal arms, and it's soon going to pass the drug trade. Because you can sell a bag of cocaine once. You can sell a child 10, 20 times a day for 10, 20 years. And, and the demand is what I want to stop. We, we've, we've worked on, we have programs for trauma healing. The books that I have coming out, starting with the one on Are You Listening? and teaching people how they can, how they can tune in to that beautiful light of truth that's inside of them in, in understanding what that intuition is and guiding them. And then in understanding book two is understanding that, like what I was talking about with, with Robert and the, the creation of your world, yeah. where it's not the law of attraction. In reality, it's the law of creation, where our actions and our words and our thoughts can create a world of abundance or scarcity, can create happiness or, or devastation and sadness. And and things like pornography. Everybody who's listening to me right now has seen pornography. Just because you look at, have seen pornography, doesn't mean you're going to become a, a pedophile. But every single one of these guys who are abusing these children has started out with a hardcore addiction that may have started out with some childhood trauma, et cetera. But that addiction, sometimes they, like a drug, they need something harder to have that same fix. And yeah. for some of them, harder is a little bit younger, a little bit younger. Pretty soon they're fantasizing about something they wouldn't have even thought was attractive five years ago, and then they're acting out on these horrific fantasies, and it's creating the tsunami of demand. So how do we fix that? How do we break those habits of taking a woman from a divine feminine to an object, of, of how we see our brothers and sisters, of how we connect with them heart to heart to heart, and help heal that trauma 
that they experienced as children from sexual abuse, from verbal abuse. These are all things that can be healed. And if we can heal these people worldwide before they become contact offenders themselves, we will save millions of children, not just thousands, not just 20 at a time. We'll save millions and we'll save the child. We realize the Child Liberation Foundation is not just here to rescue a 10-year-old in the clutches of a trafficker in Honduras. It's right. here to rescue the 10-year-old inside of a 40- and 50-year-old man or woman who had trauma as a child, that we can help fix that trauma in a way that they can then pass in hurt people, hurt people. Amen. Healed people, heal yeah, people. people. And if we can do that, we can make a powerful, positive impact in the lives of billions of people. That's what my goal is. For generations to come. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you're, you're talking about breaking a generational thing that, that it, Paul, like I, I, I are are you the reincarnation of Christ? <laughs> <laughs> no, but he's my brother. <laughs> I, 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 I joked the other day. I says, I says, it's a tag team. You're it, Paul. <laughs> Dude, that is so unbelievably amazing. I have I have questions. I, I my main question um is, you know, I, I sat here listening to you holding back most of my tears, but not all of them. Um, how, you know, I've had some martial arts training and I know you have, have as well. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not a wuss. <laughs> about, I'll just leave it at that. Um, I, I cannot imagine being in the presence of one of these people and not throat punching them like literally breaking their trachea on the spot. I, I don't know. I, I I don't have that inside of me to, to prevent myself from harming them. It's not, I would harm them like badly. I don't know how in God's name you didn't. How? Put it this way, Ken. If you put me in a room today, with a hundred pedophiles and a hundred traffickers. And you said, Paul, you've got an hour with these guys. You can either have a gun with no retribution or you can have a microphone and they have to listen. I would take that microphone and that would be the most transformational 60 minutes of their life. I would take them into the pit of hell. I would show them face to face with the depravity of of what, what happens, of the fear of these children. I would help them feel that fear and I would help them internalize it. And then I would show them the path to light. I would ensure that they never hurt another child again and make sure that they get locked up and hopefully in that position, they can, they can find some redemption. Wow. But I believe that words can heal. I believe that unconditional love can heal. And I love those children more than any of these, these men who are doing it, but I can't judge them. And I know when I'm undercover, when I was doing these missions, I know that I couldn't, I couldn't just punch them in the face and shoot them in the head. I couldn't do that now because I, we would lose those children. 
we wouldn't okay. be able to find I, them. I get it. You know? Yeah. And, and so, so yes, I believe that everybody is reachable in some way. You, that's my, you, that's my wife right there, but <laughs> I do. I, 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 um, I've been asked to, now that I've, I've started to come out public about this, I've been asked to come and speak in the prison systems. I think that there's a little bit of light in everybody. It's just covered up with a lot of trauma and a lot of darkness. And yes, we need to protect the children. And, and there have been traffickers who have been killed on our missions. Um, wow. Unfortunately, we've had some of our operators as well who have, uh, in fact, that's how I met my wonderful wife. I was, I was at a funeral in Haiti with uh, one of our operators. I had helped uh, lead the undercover work to identify the 34 children in some of the biggest trafficking rings that were taken down in, in Haiti. Uh, Operation Toussaint is a documentary about that. You don't see me in it because of the time I'm undercover. You see me with my face blurred out. You would hate me if you didn't know me because I'm laughing with the traffickers. But uh, in wow. that movie, at the end, there's a, there's a little girl. She's 14 years old. And she's sitting on a rocking chair and, and she's, um, that little girl was taken when she was seven. Uh, her parents were killed in the earthquake in Haiti and nobody knew she was even alive. And she was taken by traffickers and sold for sex 20 or more times a day for seven years. Oh my God. I was the first person to find her. It was about two o'clock in the morning, me and a dear friend named Andy, um, and we had worked our way up to what I call a, a level three trafficker. You know, level one is the guy selling me cocaine at two in the morning. Level two are the ones who physically, who are, who are selling the children, uh, have, and, uh, but they don't physically control them. The we have to get to the ones that are the suppliers. We have to be able to get there so that we could identify where they're holding the kids or where they can bring them out to a place where we can do this thing there. And so, so I had worked my way up to this level three. Her name was Cho and, uh, it was a female trafficker. She she was in this dangerous area of town. There it was 2 a.m. downtown Patientville, outside of Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and sticks a key in this door. This is a this door is four feet wide. It's about seven feet tall. It's red, rusted steel door, no windows at all in this building. Sticks a key in this door, opens it, and the first thing that I see is this this dirt hallway, um, lights dimly lit. Um, with, with cobwebs on them to the left was multiple cell doors with no windows, no access, um, except for this steel door. And she sticks a key in the steel door. The first thing that I see is a, is a, it's not even a bed. It's a steel plank and it's held to the wall with the, with the chain. And, um, so you can fold it up and down and there was, a, there was a dirty, dingy, holy, thin blanket that was sitting on this steel plank. And to the left, to the left of that was a concrete block. And this girl was sitting on that concrete block. Dirt floor, no windows. Looked at me with this blank look in her eye. She didn't speak for two weeks after we rescued her. And the first words that she said, 
I wasn't there, but somebody told me the first words that she said were, I didn't think anybody would come. She had given up hope six years before. And what makes me so mad is that every single man who walked through that door for seven years was there to hurt her. Oh, my God. And me and Andy were the first ones to walk through that door that didn't have that intention. Now, oh. now she's learning to dance. She's getting adopted. Every one of these children have that story. But what's sad is it's not just the trafficked one. There are so many millions and millions and millions of people, billions of people who have a little girl like that locked up inside of them. Things that happen to them at three and five and 10 years old that they hold with them. Their bodies have recovered. Every single cell in their body is new. It's not with them anymore, but they hold on to this emotional trauma throughout their life. And it comes out in dysfunctional relationships, dysfunctional marriages, dysfunctional actions in so many ways that hurt other people. Wow. That's the demand for that horrible act in so many others. Holy crap. I mean, wow. <clears throat> um, how can people get involved and help you and, and be a part of this. And, um, you know, a lot of people will say, as you already know, I, I want to help. I want to be a part of it. And, and until they get that call, Hey, can you be in <laughs> Columbia in two days? <laughs> right? It's like, well, I didn't mean I wanted to help like that. I, can I send 50 bucks? <laughs> yeah so so for years for years the only way that you could physically help is if you were a psychologist that spoke spanish that wanted to travel to help with the rehabilitation or if you were a former special forces guy who wanted to do some stuff and and right now the child liberation foundation is funding other foundations that are doing that work um our uh the best way that people can help now that i've decided to come out and start speaking is if you have a platform, if you have access to a podcast with a large audience, if you uh, have a group that we could speak live to influencers, if you've got connections with, uh, with big influencers, um, I've got hundreds of these stories that are heartwarming and heart wrenching at the same time. Um, my book will be coming out in three months. Are you listening? And I'll make sure that that uh, we stay in contact and you can promote that. Or maybe I can come back on briefly when it's out. We're going to put no, 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 no. We're going to promote that. I'm an Amazon influencer as well. We're going to go live on Amazon and, and promote the hell out of that. I put me on, put me on places to speak. You know, I, you can okay. go to uh, right now. Um, we're, we're putting together some websites that don't have to do with me, but right now the best way to get a hold of me is paulhutchinsonofficial.com uh, or I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Facebook. Uh, reach out to me and just say, now, if you're reaching out to me to try to have me fund your project, no, don't reach out to me. I, I get I get these calls every single day. Paul, you have this big company. No, no, I got a team that does that, but don't don't reach out to me for that. But if you if you want me on a podcast, if you've got a large following, if you've got some contacts that we can share these messages of hope, um, 
we are we are working on some new legislation that will allow for some trauma healing tools here in the US that aren't available now. We'll I'll talk about those in three or four months once they're all through. Um, but those are things that we're working on as well. But, but right now, the best thing to do is just allow me to share the stories. I'll inspire people. I'll touch their hearts. I'll help them to change the the uh, the trajectory of their life. Inspire them that they can be do and have what they want. They can let go of their trauma, and we can fix these problems long term. I I'm never ever speechless at the end of one of my shows, but Paul, I am absolutely speechless. Your story, the power that you bring, the passion, the it's it's absolutely unbelievable. Jackson just sent me a text message and he said his background is real. <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> you've got a look, my wife just said Paul's army. Um <laughs> You know, I, I mean, and that's not a hotel you're sitting in, right? That's 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 a home. No, that's our that's our home. I, we actually are selling this one in the next few weeks. We we're, we're never here. We travel all the time. We've got a beautiful ranch away from the city. So, yeah, this yeah. home is is going up for sale in the next couple of weeks. It's it's beautiful. Yeah. It's a um, it's been a place of healing. We've had a, a lot of healing. Um opportunities here with so many so many people but we're, we're never right. here and so uh we are selling this one but yeah it's it's a it's Amazing. a beautiful beautiful blessing in our lives paul you are absolutely one of my favorite human beings on planet earth i i don't know how i mean i do know how i know how i can help you i've i have a lot of big contacts so we're gonna make that happen anybody with a big podcast or show reach out to me i'll connect you with paul paul thank you from the bottom of my heart for being here today and sharing everything that you you've shared it's been absolutely unbelievable thank you thank Ken. you thank you for i'm trusting jackson to put me on your show and and thank you jackson if you're listening what a good man we call him uh, big jackson he's he's almost seven feet tall and his heart is bigger than his body he's that's such a such a good good man he is what he is he's amazing i i joke with him all the time i'm like dude don't make me beat you up okay <laughs> and he just looks he looks down at me like okay <laughs> anyway Paul, thank you so much. I'm going to end the live stream. Um, for everybody that's watching or has watched today, if you've already shared this out, thank you. Please share it again. Um, if you haven't shared it out, hey, part of the tithe and offering that Malachi 3 talks about would be today, in today's currency, sharing this information out. So share this out. You can also put at the bottom of your, your screen there, uh, Child Liberation Foundation, just uh, liberateachild.org or liberatechildren.org. So liberate somebody, somebody type that in the comments for me. I can only have one thing scrolling at a time. <laughs> yeah, liberate, so www.liberatechildren.org. .org. So somebody type that into the comments, please, and we'll make sure... Um, that it's also in the um, 
there we go. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks. Um, we'll make sure that it's it's in the show notes as well. Uh, this this has been incredible. Thank you so much. And um, wow, thank you. Thank you, Ken. I'm so I'm blown away. Like I, I'm never left speechless, but this has been absolutely amazing. So thank you so much, Paul. If you would stay with me, I'm going oh, yeah. to end the live stream now. Make sure everybody go follow Paul on all social media platforms. Go to paulhutchinsonofficial.com to get more information, to get him on your show. Grant Cardone, if you're watching, you need to have this dude on your show, man. Um, listen, I love you all. I appreciate all of you. Paul, thank you so much. Thank you, Ken.